Good morning, Christ Presbyterian Church. Good to be up here again. Um, one of the hardest, if you could turn in the, your Bibles to the book of James. Um, there's my biggest fan again over there. Uh, one of the hardest things about preaching for me is choosing a uh, text to preach. So I just decided whenever I have the privilege to come up here, we're going to make our way through the book of James. So we're going to be in James chapter 1 today. Um, James is a book of the Bible that I'm somewhat familiar with, but at the same time, it's very challenging, and I like the challenge of trying to understand what is going on in James, and also there's a challenge in applying it to your life, which is even harder. So we're going to be in James whenever I have the privilege to come up here. If you could turn to James chapter 1, let me give a little intro to the book of James as you turn there. Um, James is, I think, one of the most interesting people in the New Testament. James is um, not the brother of John. This is not the, that James. Um, James, actually, this James that wrote this has a very um, kind of famous brother. Does anybody know who James's brother is? Jesus is the correct answer. <laughs> James is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, they have the same mother, Mary, but they have a different father. Um, James's father is Joseph. And Jesus, is, Jesus was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. But they share the same mother. And James grew up with Jesus as his literal older brother. I wonder what that was like. I bet that was interesting. <laughs> but we also know that James did not believe in Jesus. Um, there's a, a couple places where we're told that Jesus' family, i.e. Uh, Mary and his brothers, they said that Jesus was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy during his earthly ministry. But we know that James did later come to believe in Jesus, and um, he became one of the most influential leaders in the, uh, the church at Jerusalem. You can read Acts 15 if you want to see the kind of clout that James had. So James was martyred in 62 AD, and before he was martyred, he wrote this letter, and he wrote this letter from Jerusalem, we believe, to a, um, a struggling, poor community of Christians. And James writes, this, this whole book is a book about trials. And James writes this letter to this church to help them to endure their trials. And these are, trials are not unique to this first century context. They're actually trials that we also face. So that is why we are reading James. So let's give attention to God's word, give attention to the letter of James as James and God speak to us through this letter. Let's read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would um, set us free this morning from what's um, holding us back, what's hindering us from loving and serving you and one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the greatest, uh, one of the good, a great question that I like to ask people, um, if I'm around you long enough, I'll probably ask you this, is 
Um, a question that I got from an interview I heard with Jerry Seinfeld, he actually asks this people this question often. Question is, um, what challenge are you facing these days? It's a good question for, to get to know someone for an icebreak, you know, icebreaker situation. It's a good question to ask um, people that you're close to even, um, because it's a great way to get underneath and kind of get inside other people's worlds. You get to know what their desires are, what their fears are. You get to know just kind of what their inner world is like and how they think. And this question that I like to ask to college students, to my friends, to my family, um, I stole it from Jerry Seinfeld, but Jerry Seinfeld actually stole it from James, because that is exactly what James wants us to consider today. What challenge are you facing? Or to put it in James's words, what trial are you meeting? Today we're going to hear some good news about God's love for us in and through our trials. The big overarching theme that happens in, this, in these verses that, that James tells us about is that God uses our trials for good. God loves his people. He is for his people. And the trials that we experience on this earth, God uses them for good. So as we examine what this looks like, though, we're going to go through this text starting at verse 2 and going to the end. And we're going to see that James has three points. There are three things. If it's true that God uses our trials for good, there are three things we must do in response. There are three commands here in this text that we want to draw our attention to. If it's true that God uses our trials for good, James says these are three points. We must count it all joy in our trial. We must ask for wisdom in our trial. And we must ask in faith in our trial. We must count it all joy in our trial. We must ask for wisdom in our trial. And we must ask in faith in our trial. The first point, we are to count it all joy in our trials. Look at verse 2. James says it very plainly. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if you've ever read the book of James, you know that um, James kind of just goes from, from this subject to this subject, seemingly no transition, like jerking you all around the place and you don't know what's coming next. Um, what actually links this letter together, though, is trial. Trial is what links this together. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What comes after our text today and is in this text today, all the way to the end of James, are various trials. He's going to take us to this trial and this trial and this trial and this trial. He's going to help us to understand what it looks like to persevere in these trials, to first of all even recognize these trial, them as trials, and what it looks like to persevere in these trials in a way that honors God, that pleases God, in a way that, to love others and to grow and be more like Jesus. If you want to read James this way, and it makes a lot more sense of where he's going and what he's doing. James is a book of trials. But we might have come maybe different definitions of what a trial is. Even the word trial is kind of ambiguous without context. What, is, what does James mean by trial? What is a trial, a biblical trial? Um, there's this YouTube channel that I watch. It's called Primitive Technology. Has everyone, anybody heard of it? All right, I've got a couple over here. I like this. Uh, it's, he's been on hiatus for a while, but what this guy does, he lives in Australia, and he lives out in the, and uh, he goes into the rainforest, and he films himself building things like kilns, um, huts. Uh, he builds lots of kilns, actually. It gets kind of repetitive, but he builds other things, weapons and other primitive technology. And one of the more exciting videos was when this guy um, progressed. He made the great leap into the Iron Age. 
That little disclaimer as I explain this, because I don't know anything about this, so don't ask me any questions, don't send me any emails, don't correct me. I know it's going to be, it's going to be way off here. Just a little disclaimer there. But he made this kiln. It was basically a, a hole in the ground, and um, he was able to get this kiln like white hot, white, white hot, so that it could handle super hot temperatures. And then this is where it gets a little bit magical to me. I don't know what's going on here, but he goes to this creek, and there's this thing called, he calls it iron bacteria. And apparently iron bacteria um, attracts little little tiny uh, microscopic bits of iron that pass by in the creek. So he takes this, this slime, brings it to his hut. Um, he mixes it with, um, with some charcoal and with some uh, dirt. And he gets the kiln white hop, and he makes these into little balls. And he drops the balls into the kiln. And so he leaves them there for a couple hours. And after it cools down, he takes these, uh, what's turned into these blobs, and he smashes them with a rock. And what has happened is that intense heat has gotten the iron that was dispersed kind of all throughout that bacteria. He's gotten the iron to come together and separate from what primitive technology man calls the slag, separates from the slag and comes together, and it melts into these little iron pellets. He now has iron. So the slag gets thrown away, and he claims this iron, and now he's able to do these incredible things. You know, you can do a lot more incredible things with iron than you can with stone or wood. This is the kind of trial that James is talking about. Being, it's like being in a white-hot kiln. It's not being tested. I mean, when he talks about trial and being tested, it's not like taking a test where you pass or fail. This is not like being um, in front of a judge where you're declared guilty or not guilty. Instead, it's like the trial of this iron bacteria. You're being smelted. You are iron bacteria in this example. I am iron bacteria in this example. And God is using trials to produce in you good things. He's also using the trial to take the slag away, to take away all these places where we're not trusting him. It's interesting in the Old Testament, I mean, actually, Peter, uh, this is a really pervasive um, image in the Bible. Peter uses this language. Paul uses this image. The Old Testament uses this image. It's almost like people were sitting around and they saw like some, some, some uh, metal being smelted, and they were like, you know what? That's how I feel today. You know what? That's my year right there, is what's happening right here with this metal. This, is what's, this was the best illustration that they could come up with for what it feels like to be changed by God, being smelted in white-hot kilns. And as you're being tested in the kiln, your faith is becoming stronger as your slag your wrong beliefs, your love for idols, your mistrust of Jesus, our pride, which we all have, gets separated and thrown away. And we're driven to the Lord for help or forgiveness or whatever, whatever we need, whatever it is that we need from Jesus now. We realize that we need it. But that's not the end of the process because in verse 4, he says that the effect, the full effect of enduring through trials and testing is that we become more and more perfect, more and more complete, stronger, more whole, more mature. More, in biblical maturity means being more dependent on God, being more dependent on Jesus. Though at the time, it feels like you're going to die. This is the end result. This is why we are to count it pure joy. Because as we come to trust in him more and more, as the slag gets separated away, as our faith becomes pure and stronger, God is making us more loving. God is making us more uh, patient. 
He's making us more kind. He's making us more gentle. He's making us more faithful. He's making us good. He's giving us greater self-control. In a word, um, trials make us more like Jesus, more pleasing to God. We become people that live for others, and this we count pure joy, that God is working this in us. Now, I'm sure in later, later in James, we're going to get into this some more, but um, these trials, James says that they're various. These trials that make us more like Jesus, they're various. Um, these trials aren't just the bad things that happen to us or the good things. that They're also the good things that happen to us, too. So, you know, getting a promotion, for example, is a trial. You've got more money now. You've got more power now. What are you going to do with this? This is a trial. Um, one of my professors at seminary told us, listen, you're going to spend some, this time here. You're going to be um, changed, and you're going to be filled up with good things, good news. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to hoard it for yourself? Are you going to hoard it for your family? Or are you going to use this to be a blessing to others? This is a trial of seminary, one of the trials of seminary. That's a trial. Getting a promotion is a trial. Trials can be the good things that happen to us, and they can be the, I don't know why I keep doing this, it feels right, or the bad things that happen to us. Um, but I want to talk about the bad things for a second, because as you read throughout the, the book of James, um, you can see what kind of, how he sees trials. There's good things and bad things. Um, I want to talk about, about the bad things, because there are some things that, are ha- that have happened to me, maybe you've had this same thought before, where I'm like, or I was like, God, um, couldn't you have blessed me, made me more mature, made me more like Jesus without this family member dying? Couldn't you have done this without my parents getting divorced? Couldn't you have done this without me crashing my car, which is going to ruin my life in college? What about, I would, I would maybe prefer, what about, give me the trial, I'd like the trial of winning the lottery. I think I could really do well in that trial. <laughs> well, there's a book by Francis Schaeffer that was really helpful for me in this. Um, it's a collection of his letters, and many of them were written as Francis Schaeffer was dying of cancer. He had cancer, he had cancer, and then he eventually died from it. One thing he says to people over and over again in his letters is that God does not give you cancer, God does not make your parents divorce, and God does not give you know, babies defective hearts. Um, God, if you're, I mean, if you're a single and you want to get married, it's not, that's not, God's not making you single. These are all the effects of sin. Sin makes this world abnormal. Sin makes this world dangerous. Sin makes this world prone to death and decay. And that's why Jesus came, is to put an end to all this. I mean, I think one way I used to think was that God would make this terrible stuff happen to me or people around me, so he would, like, teach me a lesson. He was teaching me a lesson somehow. No, these are the effects of sin and death. You know, when Jesus was with his friends and Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, everyone was crying. Lazarus had been dead for three days. And Jesus wasn't like, well, I hope you guys are all learning a valuable lesson here. Right? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus cried at the tomb. He wept at the tomb. Jesus was angry at the tomb. Jesus, there's a word that was, that's used there when, about Jesus' spirit, and it was like he is like snorting, like an angry snort, angry grunt of an animal is what that literally translates to. He's angry at sin. He's angry at death. Jesus knows your suffering. He knows all about it, and he's angry about it. He's sad about it. 
He left heaven to come and fix this. He left heaven to come and fix this broken world. He doesn't like it. And he wouldn't use these. He wouldn't, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would come to earth and then use death to teach you a lesson. He came to defeat death, not to use it against us. These are the effects of sin. And Schaefer says several times, this is a quote from him in his books. He says, I do not believe for a moment that God gave me lymphoma. God doesn't cause us to lose children. He doesn't cause us to suffer physically and emotionally or to be single when we'd rather be married, to not have children when we'd rather have children. These are things that we can grieve and be angry at because Jesus is, because God is. Jesus knows your suffering, he's in it with you, and he is against what caused it. And because of his suffering, because of his resurrection, one day we will be completely free from it. And on top of this good news is what we have in James. And on top of all this, he's, he's going to use that tragedy. He's going to use that bad thing that happened to you or someone around you. He's going to use it to make you more complete. What Satan would like to do is to use this to rip you away from God. God's going to use it to bring you toward him, to draw you near, to bring you to him. You know, when um, Joseph in Genesis 50, his brother sold him to slavery, he, he spent years in prison. He had, he had a terrible life because of what they had done. And how does Joseph, at the end of, at the end of all that, he tells his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God used it for good. Real evil suffering happened, but God used it for good. Satan would like to tear us away from him, but God's going to use it to draw us closer to him. So when James says that we are to consider it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, the, the commentators say that that word all there is not, is, it's, it's not saying that, oh, there's a joy. Here, there's a, a joy. My car broke down. I should be joyful. My Somebody I love died. I should be joyful. That's not what this text is saying. It's saying that it's actually referring to the intensity and the purity of the joy. He's not saying that we are to be exclusively joyful when we are facing trials. It, that doesn't make any sense, right? Jesus wasn't with the tomb of Lazarus. He cried and he was angry. In fact, joy doesn't even have to be the dominant theme. The question is, is it there at all? James wants us to hold on to that joy and find that joy in it. We're to make sure when we're meeting trials that we are finding a place for pure, for pure joy. God doesn't waste our um, tragedies. God doesn't waste the deaths of people around us. God doesn't waste the great things that happen to us. We should count it pure joy. That's my first point. Second point, this is hard. This is hard. If, if you feel like this is hard, James has got you right where he wants you. If you feel helpless finding joy in the trials, in your trials, James answers our helplessness here in the next verse. And this is our next point. Since God is using our trials to bless us, we should ask for wisdom. He writes in verse 4, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. For James, wisdom is the key for meeting our trials with joy and for enduring in trials. If you want to be steadfast under trial and become more like Jesus, then you had better not lack wisdom. You better ask for it. Now, we asked what James meant by the word trial a second ago. What does he mean by wisdom? How is James using this word wisdom here? 
Wisdom is one of those concepts, I think, that in, in, um, can be explained in many different ways, depending on the context. There are many great summaries. A couple of theologians that I like have great understand, um, definitions. Um, wisdom is skill in the art of living. I like that definition. Another one. Wisdom is the knowledge of God's world and the knack of fitting oneself into it. I like that one. Um, but, and how, how is James using it? Well, wisdom is the answer to the challenge of our first point, that we count it joy in our trials. Wisdom is taking the first point and saying, yes, and I'm going to lean into this trial. I'm going to look for joy, and I'm also going to pray and ask for help, that he would help me to, do, to know and to do what he wants me to do in this trial. Because naturally, how do you respond? How do I respond to trials? How do you respond? What's your go-to response when a trial comes up? In the midst of some part of our life falling apart, we might um, focus all of our attention on getting good grades. On we might focus all of our attention on keeping the house really clean or um, working really hard, or maybe just getting angry at all the people around us. That's my go-to. I remember when my um, kids, when they would go to the ER, a couple times that they had to go to the ER because they were sick. Um, I just remember, um, instead of getting mad at sickness, I would get mad at my, and frustrated at my wife, who had nothing to do with this. We were in this together, and the way it comes out in me is me getting mad at my wife. I was not doing very well in this trial, in these trials, until I asked God for wisdom and help. Help me, help me, help me. It's kind of like kids that are around my kids' age. Um, you know, when they're putting on their shoes and they're having trouble putting on their shoes, I'll be standing, or the hypothetical parent might be standing next to a hypothetical child, not in, in this room, and the child would start screaming, I can't get my shoes on, ah! And I'm standing right there and I'm ready to help. And instead of just asking for help, they're just screaming or just in, in turmoil because they can't get their shoes on, and I'm right there to help them. Now, what's funny is, you know, three-year-olds, their brains are not developed. I'm 37 years old, and I still do the same thing with God. I mean, maybe you can share that with me. Often we'll do anything except ask for help. We'll scream, we'll grumble, we'll not ask for help. There's something in us that very often does anything but ask God for wisdom, anything but ask God for help in whatever situation, whatever trial we're in. But look at the second half of verse 5 if you have your Bible. It actually says here, if any of you lacks wisdom... There's three, three things that James says here. First, he says that we should ask the giving God. He puts a, uh, an adjective here just to remind us. Um, this is the giving God. He's the God who gives. He gives and he gives and he gives. This is the God we're asking. And second, he gives without reproach. He's not be like, God's not like, oh, you're asking me again? Gosh, I'm not giving you. Oh, this is the last time. But I'm not giving you help after this, Right? God wants us to be dependent on him. He loves it when we're dependent on him. He loves it when we say help. He loves it when we ask for help. He wants us asking for help all the time. He's never going to, to uh, be reproachful toward us. And third, what happens at the end of verse 5? What happens when you ask the giving God who gives without reproach? What happens? James says very plainly, it will be given to him. Simply, he will give you wisdom. He will give you help if you ask him. Instead of screaming like a, you can't get your shoes on, asking for help, he loves, he's standing there right there waiting for you to help him, waiting to help you. 
And I love what James is kind of implicitly, uh, this is how I'm reading it, maybe I'm reading it a little too far, but I feel like James is kind of implicitly asking us, telling us to test God here. He says, Here's, he's so generous, he's always going to give without reproach, and he'll give it to you. So what should we do? Ask him. It's almost like he's, uh, he's, he's asking, telling us, <laughs> this is how I'm reading it, test him, do it, see what happens. There may be some trial that's, that's made you hard and bitter, and you haven't asked God for wisdom. Instead, you're screaming like a three-year-old with an undeveloped brain, like me. If you're lacking wisdom, ask for wisdom. If you don't know what to do, ask for help. If you don't know how to see this, this in a way that, uh, that is, um, that's bringing you joy, ask for it. Or maybe you're at the high point of your life. Maybe right now in your life or sometime in the future, all your dreams are coming true. Everything you want to happen is happening. But you're feeling this drift away from trusting him. Maybe because you're getting all this stuff and you don't feel like to trust God as much anymore. That's a trial. You're in the trial of all your dreams coming true. You're in the trial of good things. And it's just as much a trial as the tragedies and the bad things. That high point is a trial. Ask for wisdom. Or maybe you're like I was when my kids got sick. Maybe you're living in a crucible of tension at your home the last few days, the last few months, or more. And as far as it depends on you, you've got this like sneaking suspicion, maybe I did something, maybe there's something I can say I'm sorry for. Ask for help. Or maybe you're, maybe you're at a place where you're like, I don't have anything to say I'm sorry for. Maybe you really need help at that point. <laughs> Ask for wisdom. The generous God will give it without reproach to you who ask. So we're to ask God for wisdom so that we can count it joy, trust him, obey him, and grow. And he will give it. But there is just one caveat to this promise. <clears throat> this is our last point. If God uses trials for good, we must ask for wisdom, but we must ask in faith. Look at verse 6 and 7. James says that we are to ask for wisdom and faith with no doubting, he says, because the one who doubts isn't getting anything. Now, what is going on here? James just, just uh, like opened the floodgates about how um, generous this God is. And now he says this. It sounds like almost like a bait and switch that James is pulling on us. What is going on? Well, the first thing to notice is that here in this scenario, God, the generous God, the giving God, he's not the variable. He's the constant. He's the same. The thing that changes is the asker. What's the difference between the asker who, who doubts? What is the difference? What's wrong with this asker? James says that he, he says literally, it's the one who doubts. Now, that can mean a lot of things. What does that mean to doubt? Because, you know, Thomas, he doubted, but Jesus was still faithful to Thomas. Um, Peter doubted when he was called to walk on water, and he was walking on water, and then he doubted. Jesus didn't let him drown. Um, the father in uh, Mark 9 that asked Jesus to heal his son, he doubted, but Jesus still healed his son. What kind of doubt is James talking about here? First of all, this is something extreme because James says in verse 7 that the per this person is not getting anything from God. He shouldn't expect anything. God's not going to give him anything. So this is something kind of extreme, whatever it is. And the key here is verse 8. James calls this asker a double-minded man. Literally, in um, the Greek, it's a two-souled person. A person with two souls. He's going two directions at the same time. He's two people at the same time. He wants two different things. 
The doubt here is not whether or not God will give, which is often how you can read this. I need to believe that God will give it to me. That's actually not what this means. The doubt here is not whether God will give the wisdom that leads to joy and trials and steadfastness. The doubt here is whether he really wants this wisdom that leads to joy and trials and steadfastness. In the first place, whether he wants it. The issue here is one of allegiance. It's not like how, um, how good you're doing. That's not the trial, the, the, the issue here. The issue is here is, what is the allegiance of this asker? The one James is speaking of here is a person who is, seems to be allied with God in one moment, and then they're going their own way, and then force, comes back and goes back, or two at the same time. An example of this is like a person that seems to be, seems to want God to rule their life for one moment, and then, or maybe a day or a week, and then they, fall, they seem to fall away or turn away. It's just a confusing person that doesn't know where their allegiance lies. They don't, they're, they're not one that can say, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to please God. So to what purpose would God give them anything? Why, why would he give them anything? They shouldn't expect anything from him. If the end goal is that we are to grow in trusting and being pleasing to God, and this person is not walking toward that end, doesn't want that end, then why would God give him gifts that lead in that direction? This is what James is saying. So James leaves this person and the double-minded man, the double-souled man, and the, the one who asks in simple faith. Pulls these two up here at the end of our text. And he's asking the question, which one are you? Are you a double-minded man, a double-minded woman? Do you not really know where your allegiance lies? Is your ultimate goal, to, maybe you're, uh, you stumble and you fall, but in the end, is your ultimate goal to live a life pleasing to God, in God's sight, or is it something else? Is being more like Jesus, is um, being gentle and kind and loving, deferring, yielding to others, giving up your desires, your privileges, your rights for others, is that your goal in life? Does that make you happy? Does that, is, that, is that where your treasure is? If it's not, then you can expect nothing from God. If it's not, you're not gonna, God's not going to give anything to you until you get this sorted out. This is a good God that only gives wisdom, that only gives, that gives lots of us, lots and lots of wisdom, but even he gives us forgiveness for all of our sins and all of our rebellion and wandering. And you know what? The only reason that God is good to us and gives us so many good things is only because he's only so generous with us because of Jesus, because Jesus has died for us, and we've trusted in him. There's forgiveness for all who come to God through his son, Jesus. Or are you one who just asks in simple faith? If you're, let me give an encouragement to you. If you're one who trusts in Jesus, if you want to go wherever he leads, leads you, if you want to live a life pleasing to him, please know, as James says here, that all these trials, remember, know that God's using all of these trials for your good, and for his glory. This week, let's ask for wisdom as we meet these trials of various kinds. And let's ask him right now to help us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us um, wisdom so that we can see these trials for what they are. We pray that you would help us to find joy in these trials, as James tells us to do. The joy that you are making us, despite how painful all these trials can be and confusing that there is 
you are not wasting our trials. You're using them to make us more like Jesus. And would you make us bring joy to our lives as we trust in you and we trust in Jesus to come on the last day and fix everything that's broken. And we pray in Jesus' name.